Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Once again, Joe and I are honored to be joined today by Margaret Sullivan. Margaret is the media columnist for The Washington Post. And before that, Margaret served as the fifth public editor of The New York Times and was the first woman to hold that position. Margaret Sullivan, welcome back to Words Matter. Thank you so much. Nice to be back with both of you. Now, last time we had you on, we talked about half a dozen of your columns. Today, we're going to focus on one. Last week, you wrote in the Washington Post, quote, journalists can't repeat their Watergate hero act. The reasons should make us grieve. I know Joe has a lot of thoughts on your column, so I'll let him lead off. Well, let me just let you describe from your point of view, what prompted the column? What should your readers and our listeners take away from it? I was one of these Watergate hearings kids, was a young teenager, maybe 14 or something like that, when the hearings were on and my family was gathered around the you know, living room television watching the, the hearings and it made a big impact on me. And I would even go so far as to say that the idea of Woodward and Bernstein were like, as with many people of my generation, it pulled us into journalism. So, you know, I have a great interest in that whole chapter. And of course, I work at the Washington Post now, and it's big history there. It tends to surface at this time because impeachment is a topic that's in the air. And I was at a sort of a journalism confab last week, and and the three network news chiefs of CBS, ABC, and NBC were there. And an audience question was, how come the press isn't holding the the president accountable the way they did during Watergate and Nixon? And so that's kind of what set me off, that combination of things. And I also talked to some people about this, and, and a big takeaway of theirs was that the press can't do it alone. So... We're going to show ourselves as contemporaries because not only was my family gripped by the Watergate hearings, my dad was a journalist and he was sent to Washington for the entire summer and I was sent to spend a week with dad and he didn't know what to do with me. So he planted me in the back of the hearing room and for three straight days watched John Ehrlichman from the beginning to end. The world has changed radically since then. As you'll remember, the Watergate hearings were on there were four channels. They were on all four channels for the first five days from beginning to end. PBS covered all 392 hours of the Senate Select yep. Committee. The networks covered the first five days and then realized they were losing a lot of money. So they worked out a rotation system. The media landscape is very different now. So different. So how does the fact that you have the internet. You, people don't watch the network news anymore. There's Netflix, there's Sean Hannity, there's Alex Jones. What impact does that have on the ability to hold the president accountable? Well, so far we haven't had any hearings. Maybe if there were hearings, people would be glued to them. I don't know. People were pretty glued to the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. I can tell you that much. So who knows whether there, but I think that there wouldn't be that level of intense focus the way there was because we have so many choices and because some people are kind of turned off to the whole circus of what media has become. And 
we have Fox News. And Fox News has the counter narrative all the time that this is nonsense. This is all a, a coup attempt. This is the Democrats and their whipping boys, the the media trying to take down a duly elected president. And so that's a very strong counter narrative that undermines I think, often undermines factuality because that's not what journalists are up to. We're not trying to take down the president. We're trying to do our job of holding government accountable. You mentioned Fox News, and there's a piece in the column that I, I wanted to, to quote and then ask you about. You, you write, quote, Straight News was not relentlessly countered by the bad faith propaganda in the style of Fox News's Sean Hannity. And in his book about Roger Ailes, Gabe Sherman documented how Fox News was created to a large degree because Ailes believed that if Nixon had something like that, he would have survived Watergate. So is Ailes being proven correct before our eyes here? Ailes and Rupert Murdoch have proven to be very effective in setting up Fox, and we see this in our politics, absolutely. So yes, I I mean, I think so. I I just don't know how much to assign to it in terms of, you know, ultimate outcomes. We, We really look at the midterms. The midterms went the Democrats' way, largely, despite what you might have heard on Fox News. The president's, President Trump's popularity doesn't really increase or decrease because of Fox News. It holds pretty st- – I mean, maybe he, maybe it keeps him as popular as he is. It probably does. But it doesn't seem to cut into the people who don't like him or find him unacceptable. We also, in, if you go back to 1973, had people whose trustworthiness was beyond reproach. You had people like Walter Cronkite at CBS – David Brinkley and Chet Huntley and at, at NBC. We don't seem to have those voices now. There is not a unified place where people can go and get one set of facts. How do journalists adjust to the fact that no matter what they do, the public's going to be getting a scatter stream of information that they have to curate for themselves? This is sort of the point of my column. Journalists can't fix all these problems. They can they can do their job and do it well. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I admire Marty Barron, the executive editor of The Washington Post, so much, because that he has a laser focus on just do the work. And, it you know, whether it changes the world or not, I don't think he's actually attached to that. His point, and I think this is right, is you do the work to the best of your ability and whatever happens, whatever the electorate and citizens and other branches of government choose to do about that is, in a way, not your concern something you report on, but it's not, you know, you're not responsible for it. Yeah, I was on a a panel earlier this week with uh, Mark Leibovich of The Times, and we were musing about this. And I I made the comment that it feels like there's not been, in my memory, a time where reporting has been so outstanding and its impact has been so limited. I think that's right. Some people will say, who cares about the Pulitzer Prizes? That's just a bunch of elites giving prizes to each other. I don't think that's true. It It is a pretty good measure of the best of journalism. Not this year, but last year, the Times and the Post shared a Pulitzer for the reporting into the Trump administration's contacts with Russians. But a great deal of what was in the Mueller report was reported first. I think the reporting has been very strong. That's not to say that the media does everything right, which they absolutely don't. I mean, the coverage of the Barr letter was bad, really bad. 
too credulous. We see a lot of things like that. We let President Trump serve as our de facto assignment editor way too much. So I don't ever want to come off like I think the media is doing a great job. I I don't. But I do think the quality of the best reporting has been excellent. Do you think we're in a transition phase with the influx of podcasts and social media and everything that's swirling around the substantive journalism? Or do you think this is the new normal and, and voices like Walter Cronkite's will no longer rise to the top? Or, or maybe we're just finding our footing. Different people have their, their trusted sources. A lot of people love to watch Rachel Maddow, for example, and they, they feel like she guides them through this process. That's clearly sort of left-leaning. I don't, I don't equate MSNBC with Fox. I don't buy this idea that, oh, there's Fox on the right and MSNBC on the left. That they're just That's apples and oranges. It's not really true. Different people will find a columnist, for example, a David Leonhardt at the New York Times or a, a Eugene Robinson at the Washington Post or E.J. Dion, I think, is, is, is one who, you know, kind of makes sense of things for people. So I think there are trusted voices. It's just that they're not necessarily trusted by everyone. the same people and everyone all the time. Well, and they don't have the platforms that Walter Cronkite had. Remember, during the 1960s, <clears throat> There were, on average, 20 to 25 million people tuning into Walter Cronkite and the other networks close behind. So you had the majority of the adults in this country not only watching the news, but getting it from what was deemed credible sources. And and what you had was different opinions, but you worked off the same set of facts. Exactly. Now now we have uh, everyone has their their own facts. Going back in history, it's widely believed that we lost the Vietnam War when we lost Walter Cronkite. The night he went on and said, this war isn't winnable and we we should face up to that fact, it's oversimplified. I want you to talk a little bit more about how Trump does control the narrative. I'm incredibly put off by some parts of this. And I thought Karen Tumulty, one of your colleagues at The Post, did a great tweet column combo where she just said she's not using nicknames anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wish everyone did that. Trump has figured out that he can tell a bald-faced lie and get a good three or four hours out of it before and before the truth catches up. What should journalists be doing different to combat that? Well, one of the things we need to do is to fact-check in real time and in the same place if we're writing a story, the fact check should not be this freestanding thing over here that comes later. It needs to be in the same place as the assertion of the facts. I think the other thing we should be really careful of is not putting in a headline, a tweet, a news alert, or a chyron, those things at the bottom of the TV screen, insults or false statements. So because that only amplifies things that shouldn't be amplified, you might need to repeat them or or state them in the course of an article, in the course of a broadcast. But you don't have to say Trump colon and then something that's a lie or a misstatement or a false statement. We saw an example of this week, a week and a half ago, which if you'd been sitting in your public editor chair, it would have lit up the chair and, and, and your room in your office. And it was exactly that, someone writing a headline for a brief. It was Maggie Haberman's story, Kenny Rogers, that basically the headline said, Trump family is the new royalty. 
And if you read the story, they were making the exact opposite point, mm -hmm. which was they were in some ways having some fun with them, which is they were trying to be, but they were failing miserably. And the internet just lit up. And, right. you know, it was very unfair criticism of the of the two reporters. And the Times did change the headline and made a point of saying Trump has t told people that he doesn't care what the talking heads say. He cares what's on the crawl on the bottom because that that's what gets people's attention. That came up with the coverage of the Mueller report, particularly Barr's summary of it. Even mainstream media, even what some people think of left-leaning media, kind of wrote the story as no collusion, no obstruction, because Barr said it that mm -hmm. way, and he really did. He he made the conclusion that there was no obstruction. And so those were the big headlines. And that actually isn't what the report says. And so headlines are super important. Chirons are really important. Journalists and producers and editors don't fully understand that a lot of people only look at that stuff. They right. only look at the headline. They only look at the news alert. I think it was remarkable the day that Robert Mueller gave his press conference, the feedback and the response that he got in the public of people actually surprised, even though he said nothing new that wasn't in the report already. I mean, just as a columnist, I had to laugh at what he was saying, because basically what he was saying and what we always say is, could you read the column? Because that stuff is yeah, addressed right. in yeah. it. Yeah. And yeah. he was kind of like, I wrote, a could really, you read the report? I wrote yes. a really good report with, that every citizen should read. Which, right. which I think every citizen yeah, should read and won't, and uh, won't. which That's is why, right. we, keep, we'll why, is why exactly. we keep talking about it. So on the bar example, would it have made a big impact if the headline was bar says no conclusion, no obstruction instead I mean, of? Yes, I think it would have made a difference. And some headlines did say it that way, and some came around to saying it that way. You know, but I I, I guess I wish that there had been a little bit more nuance to it. You know, it's hard to be nuanced in five words, really hard. But those five and, words and, matter a lot. And when you're trying to be fast. Yeah. And when you're trying exactly to be out right. there with— Fast, competitive. I mean, I think that we're too scoop-oriented. I really do. I think very few readers, viewers care— or know or remember who got the scoop on yep. something. But we do. When, in fact, what the public can tell you is where you got it wrong. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And they will tell you over and over again. Just on the New York Times, what's your reaction to their decision to keep their reporters off some opinion programs, particularly Rachel Maddow and MSNBC? I wouldn't make the decision that way. And, in fact, not that the Washington Post and I always agree on everything, but I like the Post point of view on this, which is we basically encourage our reporters and writers and people to go on a wide range of programs and to stick with their reporting as they're on those shows. And I can tell you, even though I've written pretty tough things about Fox News, I have been on Howie Kurtz's Media Buzz. I've been on MSNBC. I mean, I'm still the same person. You know, I don't change my stripes just because I'm on a particular show. So it's not a decision by the times that I think was the best one. I wanted to go back to the column because a lot of what we've been doing lately, and, and we do it on this show and MSNBC and Fox, is we compare eras. And you set the column out. I mean, we compare it to Watergate. We compare to the Clinton impeachment. And you set the column out at the beginning up quoting Susan Zarensky, the president of CBS News, saying, you can't compare eras. 
And I thought that was interesting in calculating the time difference. The time between today and Watergate is actually the same time between the assassination of President Kennedy and America's entry into World War One. And in fact, it's a longer period than John Kennedy's entire life. But is it because we have the video of Richard Nixon and the Watergate hearings or because a then young White House counsel named John Dean is still with us at congressional hearings? Why do we readily compare eras when we don't do so in other cases? Well, I mean, one of the reasons we we think about Watergate in this case is because the specter of impeachment doesn't come around that often. Right. There's Watergate and then there's the Clinton impeachment and acquittal. And there's now where there's been no impeachment, but there sure is a lot of talk of it. I mean, I think part of it is there are these through lines. There is Hillary Clinton who was on a Watergate investigative committee. There, There is a John Dean. You know, there are other figures. Even Susan Zerinsky, the new head of CBS News, told the story at this same conference I was at about how as a, I think she said she was 19, she was a 19-year-old college student at American University working part-time at CBS. She was all alone in the CBS Washington Bureau the night of the Saturday Night Massacre as Nixon fired the special prosecutor. She made a joke of it, but she said she was sort of briefly in charge of the bureau because no one else was there. But that's another through line. You know, she's now the head of CBS News. So there are people who connect us too. I think the the other through line is abuse of presidential power. And and you can make that argument somewhat in the Clinton case of – whether he abused his position to cover up. That's an argument that has been made, and I'm, I'm not going to change anybody's mind on it, or, nor try to here. But let me change gears here a little bit. How's the media doing covering the campaign? You have you were critical of the, mm-hmm. the coverage in 2016. We're going to have you back periodically to <laughs> right. give the media a grade. How do you grade them right now? It's a little disappointing, even though I think there's been a lot of lip service given to we're going to do things differently. In some ways, they are. I mean, one of the good things I'm seeing is that there's more staff and they're putting people out in the heartland, in the center of the country, not just on the Acela corridor. So I think there's an effort to kind of get the mood of of the country a little bit better. The thing that's not so good is how quickly we fall into horse race coverage, even at this early stage an over-reliance on polls that I don't think are that meaningful. And then the question of, I mean, this is a tricky and kind of really interesting thing, is this question of, is about electability among the Democrats. The biggest priority among a lot of Democratic voters or would-be voters is they want Donald Trump out. So who's the person, man or woman, who's going to be able to unseat him. That's the thing they care about more than anything. There's a sort of narrative that Joe Biden is the most electable person. And I think it's his narrative to a large extent and one that's kind of working for him. But whether it's actually true or not is another question. I mean, ask yourself, was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez electable? No, she wasn't electable until she until she won. Was Hillary Clinton electable? Absolutely. She was supposed to win. She was not just electable, but invincible until she wasn't. Well, both of those were women also in comparing those and electability standards to Joe Biden. That's and right. the standard he's held to is an entirely different ballgame, I think. That's true. To underline your point, each of the candidates in the top six or seven of the candidates beats Donald Trump. 
So what is if you believe the polls? If, if you, you believe, believe the, the polls, polls I mean, what does it matter if you beat them by seven points or nine points? Because no one's going to win by seven or nine points, right? They're also not going to win the popular vote. I mean, yes, someone will win the popular vote, but that's not how you get elected president. So I think polls are interesting, and I mean, I'm just as interested in the horse race as anybody else. But I think it's a flawed way. You know, I do want to add this, that people will say, regular folks, news consumers will say, too much too much horse race coverage. You know, I wish you'd cover the substantive issues. But the truth is there's a, there's a lot of interest. The there's a lot of interest in the horse race. And so you kind of do give people what they want to some extent. And it takes a lot of work to get through the substantive issues. And people tend to read right. the headline and say, I, I, you know, I'll no come one's back giving, to that. Like, uh, this, this doesn't have a beginning, middle, and end. So, That's um, right. One more on on the election. And, you know, we had a um, a day last week where both uh, Vice President Biden and Donald Trump were in Iowa at the same time. And that dominated the coverage. And I don't know what else got said except for the insults that went back and forth. A lot of people believe, particularly you talk to the Hillary Clinton people, that the the ability to frame the narrative by insults and launching charges in 2016 was a big reason why she couldn't get any of her message out. How are they doing on that front of not letting Trump's crudeness drive the narrative? What does the media need to do to do better? Well, I mean, I think that to stop repeating the nicknames, for one thing, that I mean, I call them nicknames. They're really insults. He's got one for every person. I I don't think he's been effective on the Mayor Pete calling him Alfred E. Newman. That didn't you work. Know? I had to, no, I had to no. Google that too. Exactly. Yeah. Like Mayor Pete. But, um, but in general, we don't have to amplify them the way we do. And it, it's really – it's not useful. It's not good coverage. It plays into the worst of politics and the worst of media. One of the things that has, has struck me looking at this is the president tweets a lot. He says a lot. Uh, and when he tweets about things that have something to do with the office of the presidency, you've got to cover it because he is the president. So if he tweets that the you know prime minister of Poland you know had too many drinks at dinner last night, that's crude. It's dumb, but it's news because it will impact that bilateral relationship and maybe broader. The thing is, I don't know if you're telling something that actually happened or not. Are you uh, making this it? up? I'm, I'm make, <laughs> making I'm, it up. I'm making that one up. All right. Uh, I'm sure there's one that you I'm never you know. know. You never know. But I keep repeating to anyone who listened, the president is not a political pundit. And when he engages in punditry, you do not have to cover it. So when he goes out on the South Lawn and says, I think Joe Biden is the best candidate or the weakest candidate or Kamala Harris is this or all of that, he has reduced himself to pundit stage and it it should just be ignored. Right. There's something – kind of irresistible about the way he frames things. And he has an amazing instinct for sort of driving the media caravan. And he's very good at distraction. But we can know that he's good at that and take that into consideration and sort of ratchet it back. But a lot of times the media doesn't do that. All right. So before we close, we wanted to talk to you. Last week marked 11 years since the former NBC News Washington bureau chief and moderator of Meet the Press, Tim Russert, passed away. And last time you were on, we talked to you about you're both from the same hometown, Buffalo, and you knew him well. 
just wanted to ask you about this moment in history and this moment in journalistic coverage and in politics and how much he's missed in a moment Uh like this. Well, there are figures that we miss. I know that Tim Russert is one of them. I think Gwen Ifill is another one. People who were just particularly credible and had a big following, but when they were on the air, you felt like you were in pretty good hands. And in this era of being so chopped up, there's so much cacophony, I think that those are voices that that cut through it. And of course, Tim, because he had, you know, the Buffalo authenticity. (laughs) Just like you. Right, exactly. That comes with the package. Right. I mean, the, the, the great thing about Tim from the political side was you were always a little frightened because he would you tough. Know, he's tough and he would tear it apart but when you knew you had a good case there was this phenomenon of saying we're very confident we're going to do Tim because everyone will know that if Tim doesn't tear us apart that the case we're making is strong mm. and i think you know we miss that politicians feet being held to the fire their hypocrisy being pointed out their own words being shoved back down their mouth But I think we also miss the idea that good public policy and good politics, when it's scrutinized and passes the Russert test, Mm -hmm. really breaks through and has meaning to the public. That's what I miss the most about Tim. Absolutely. All right, Margaret. Well, thank you for joining us once again, a repeat player on Words Matter. We're so grateful. Well, so we are going to see you again. We're going to keep you updating how the media is doing. And we're going to talk more about Fox. I just, Sounds I, good. I've got way more <laughs> hostility always, built up. Always and, ready. Yeah. Okay, okay, great. Thanks, Margaret. Thanks. Thank you. All right, Joe, for what's on your mind this week, I want to lead off with the ABC interview with President Trump and George Stephanopoulos, where President Trump said that he would take information on his political adversary in the 2020 campaign from a foreign power and not tell the FBI about it. So what do you make of this interview of President Trump saying that? Were you surprised? Well, it's hard to be surprised uh, with Trump or probably more accurately, you're surprised for about 30 seconds and then you remember who said it. Uh, So not particularly surprised. It is still shocking in some ways that This is a president who puts his own political fortunes ahead of the democratic norms in this country, who's basically sending a message around the world to friend and foe alike that it's in their interest to dig up dirt on his political opponents because he's going to be taking names uh, and looking for who's going to help. It's putting our democracy up for sale. Uh, He's done this in a number of ways as president. Uh, this one was particularly jarring, uh, and and it was jarring how open he was, and didn't even try to nuance or hide what uh, he was saying. Politically, I think this is in, in, incredibly important uh, for this reason. Most of the Democrats, the political players, have really focused on volume two of the Mueller report on obstruction of justice. It is so clear the president obstructed justice. You know, you don't need a thousand prosecutors to tell you that. And volume one was sort of put aside as there was a lot of smoke there, but we never found the fire. Well, this turbocharges the relevance of volume one because the president is now saying, hey, I'd do it again. Uh, you couldn't. I don't know what you could prove the first time, but I'm back in business here. And that, I think, really does give a push to those who are 
trying to hold him accountable through the you know hearing process and very much will be a talking point for those who want to open impeachment hearings right now. So I wanted to ask you as somebody who used to help decide who got to speak to the president when and for how long, for this interview, George Stephanopoulos got to spend time with the president over the course of two days. What was going through uh, his handlers' minds in deciding to to open that floodgate? Well, I'm not sure he's got a handler now who's got any influence with him. So I have to assume that he made this decision himself. The president's strategy for the last 18 months or so, since really since the Lester Holt debacle, is to talk to Fox News. I think he's talked to Fox News nearly 100 times. Yeah, so why uh, this? Why ABC and why George is very curious and why so much access, even the optics of it, George standing over him uh, in the Oval Office because the president was sitting, towering over the, the president as he was pushing him on this FBI question. The one thing that... I can tell you, because George was in the White House for as long as he was, is none of the trappings of the office of the president would have any impact on him. He's been there, seen that, done it. I have to say there are other reporters who are fine reporters who the first time they get walked through the all the special things that happen for the president, it has an impact. You know, I could think of other people who it might have made sense outside of Fox News to give unlimited access for two days. But it's just a very peculiar decision uh, and a very bad decision. He said a lot of things beyond just the FBI case because George is a very tough uh, interviewer. And it's just hard to find a rationale for doing that interview with that person with that amount of access now, except the president is worried. There has been a controversy over his own internal polls showing how weak he is around the country and how, you know, not speaking to independents is potentially disastrous. He calls his own polls fake news. I I don't know how you call your own. I mean, it's like saying I took myself out of context. Uh, They're words, (laughs) uh, but they don't mean anything. I think this may have been a overreaction to some political worry. Now, George was looking – has been pushing for over a year to get this done, to all of a sudden say, oh, yes, and you can have all of this. There is a reason. I I can speculate on what what I think it might be. Uh, Only the president knows. Well, we'll see what happens, but maybe maybe this will assuage the the political concerns and worry for now, or maybe this is the first step in a series of moves that we're about to see in response to those fake news polls. Buckle up. Uh, One of the things that is on my mind is what the House is doing and is not doing uh, as far as holding the president accountable. Last week, they took a vote on contempt, and I read the stories and completely misunderstood what they were doing. Explain the way you did to me, to our listeners, what that vote was and why it is potentially so important. What Congress right now has the power to do is hold an individual in criminal contempt. And when that happens, it's a referral to the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia. That happens to be Jesse Liu. Her boss happens to be Attorney General Barr. She's not going to pursue contempt proceedings against her boss. So what the vote did for the full House was give congressmen and particularly the committee chairman an alternative route to hold these individuals in the administration accountable. They can go to a court, a co-equal branch of government, and ask a judge, judge, please enforce the subpoena. If the individual recipient of the subpoena still doesn't reply or respond, then the judge can hold that individual in contempt. Now, a contempt order in that case, 
again would get referred to the Department of Justice. If they declined to pursue contempt proceedings, a judge has the power to appoint his own special prosecutor to enforce the contempt. So it's bringing in a co-equal branch of government that will enforce these subpoenas and these requests for information. And they basically open the door to allow every committee chairman that route should they so choose. For the non-lawyers like me out there, the light bulb that went off in my head was if anything's going to move forward on impeachment, um, the hammer is going to be from the judiciary. The public sees Democrats yelling at Republicans, Republicans yelling at Democrats as all part of our daily politics. Uh, I think they take seriously the issues around the Mueller report to the extent that they understand and have read uh, the report. But what the game changer in this is going to be is if the courts compel live public testimony from the players who actually know the facts. And it strikes me that the Democrats here were very smart, even though they seemed to take some heat, looked like they were backing down. They were smart to take an alternative route to get judges rather than people who work uh, at the Department of Justice to enforce these. Yeah. Now, the real question is, are we leading up to an even bigger constitutional crisis where the subpoena recipients still don't comply uh, when they're being held in contempt of court? And that will be a question for further down the road. But I think it might be one that's coming. Well, I mean, I think the American public can tolerate the two parties holding each other in contempt. I think it's a whole different story when a politician holds the judiciary in contempt. Uh, or the judiciary holds the politician in contempt. I've thought for a while that that's the wild card here. I was so glad that we talked about that earlier because I did not understand the significance of, of that vote. All right. Next up, the U.S. Office of the Special Counsel recommended that Kellyanne Conway be removed from her official duties at the White House because she had violated the Hatch Act. We are still awaiting a tweet from her uh, Twitter-happy husband, George Conway. We haven't heard anything yet, but what are your thoughts? They recommended she be fired uh, because of her repeated um, uh, Hatch Act violations. The Hatch Act is something that Everybody learns about when you go at the White House or you're in the executive branch. There's a bright line of what you can do. You can support legislation. You can be critical of people who are blocking or are on the other side uh, of legislation. But you can't campaign from the executive branch. It is a very bright line. I did 250 briefings. I did 200 informal press gaggles. I never violated the Hatch Act because I knew where the line was. I knew how to walk right up to it. I knew how to look at it. I knew how to look over the other side of it, and I knew I wasn't stepping there <laughs> uh, because it was the law, and it was something you take seriously. Kellyanne will not be fired because it's up to the president to do that. The, the, the reason this is important is it highlights, once again, the contempt President Trump and his staff have for the rule of law. They believe that the rules apply to everybody but themselves and that they can make rules themselves and that the the laws of the country, the constitution, the norms, they are to be decided by them and, and them alone. And it really is a, um, a unique uh, case study uh, in uh, a president – in a corrupt president's presidency – uh, when his uh, his most visible top aide uh, repeatedly violates the law, 
he does nothing about it, and she makes a joke about it. Uh, she says, when, when is my jail sentence going to start? And she laughs. It's, it is a strategy. Um, it's a very destructive one. Now, contrary to the advice that we just received from Margaret Sullivan, I want to talk about a silly tweet from the president. He defended himself uh, in the ABC interview by saying, I meet with, with foreign uh, leaders all the time. I met with the president of France. I met with the Queen of England. I met with the Prince of Wales. And he spelled it W-H-A-L-E-S, saying, I'm not doing anything wrong here. I do this all the time. Now, if the Queen of England offered him information about a political adversary as charming as she is, I think he should let the FBI know. But putting the substance aside, do you think that he makes spelling errors like that or tweets like that to deflect and to put a shiny object over somewhere else when something else bad is happening? Or do you think it's it's actually an accident? He has mastered the art of shiny object, look over here. Not on this one, though. I mean, I think there's two competing parts of the president's id here. One is to get everyone to pay attention to what he wants them to pay attention to. And he's quite adept at that. He does this all the time with uh, statements that are not true, that are lies, that are ridiculous, that are just outlandish. The press chases it for a while and then gives up on it. But he's, another part of it is his id is he's impulsive and he has, doesn't have any impulse control. Uh, and when he has a feeling, he has to express it. Go to your phone and type in Prince, Prince of Wales using W-H-A-L-E-S, and it won't be autocorrected because there isn't an algorithm that can depth the complete stupidity of this president. So it, I tried that. You're right. It doesn't autocorrect. It, it, I thought it, it would. It doesn't autocorrect because there, no one has been smart enough to get to the bottom of just how fundamentally dumb he is. On the other hand, it did give me the opportunity to tweet out that, Mr. President, the Duke of Dolphins is on the line. With every tragedy, there's an opportunity. Every door closes, one opens for me. Yeah, I got to tell you, Twitter in general, hook, line, and sinker fell for that shiny Ooh. object because that was all morning. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's throw a net over this one and maybe wrap it up for the week. <laughs> all right, Joe. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. <laughs>